Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. In the context of a world where authoritarianism, where ethnic nationalism is sweeping the globe, it sounds sentimental to be talking about belonging. That's the major story we're fighting about. Do we have a large we where everybody belong? Where whales belong, where children belong. And I don't care if they're from Syria or they're from Mexico or if they're from Kansas, but everybody belongs. That's a really important but radical concept. In this program, racial justice advocates Ariel Deranger, John A. Powell, and Anita Sanchez explore how overcoming the illusion of separateness from nature and each other requires building bridges rather than burning them. They say the fate of the world depends on it. This is reweaving the web of belonging. The inside is not, and the outside is too. I'm Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. As author Michael Pollan observes, quote, the two biggest crises humanity faces today are tribalism and the environmental crisis. They both involve the objectifying of the other, whether that other is nature or other people, unquote. So how do we reweave that web of relationships and focus on our likenesses rather than our differences? Professor John A. Powell of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute says it's really complicated and undeniably imperative. In that question hangs the fate of the world as we know it. John A. Powell is an internationally recognized scholar and activist in the areas of civil rights, structural racism, and democracy. He's the author of Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Concepts of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society. John A. Powell spoke on a panel at a Bioneers conference. And there are two big stories. And one story is about a smaller and smaller we. In fact, sometimes that we get so small it becomes, it stops being a we altogether, it becomes mm. an I. And we actually have a word for it. We call it narcissism. Uh, and um, where everything is about me or my little group, everything else that's outside of me and my group is seen as a threat. And the way I deal with that threat is to dominate. And so we divide the world up, not just for nomenclature, but for deciding who gets dominated and who the dominators. The story of humans in this small we is the humans are here to dominate, control, exploit. And that's the dominant story we still live with. And we have actually have another name for it. That story is called capitalism. Mm -hmm. Everything is to be taken, to be used. And you say, so what, what happens when it's all used up? Well, there are other planets. <laughs> we can go someplace. It we can literally space. break from the earth and start all over again. So that's the dominant theme. It's not just a story. We organize our whole economy around it. Mm -hmm. We organize our structures around it. And when you, once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. So literally, 
up until the late 60s, we had in many, many states, not only are we separating people based on their race, we're saying it's against the law, it's a crime for people of different races to marry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Many of you weren't born in the 60s. But we have large numbers of people running around the country today reasserting, not implicitly, not if my friend Ian Henry Lopez would say, not a dog whistle, but with a bullhorn saying, we need to restore white supremacy, white nationalism. We need to dominate. There grow more and more people in the United States who say, what is this thing, equality? We don't believe in equality. It's natural for people to be with their own. And their own is this small race, religion, this small we. What comes from that is putting kids in cages. And literally, you have people saying, those are not our kids. They don't belong here. And we're doing it over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's the major story we're fighting about. Do we have a large we where everybody belong? Where whales belong? Where children belong? And I don't care if they're from Syria or they're from Mexico or if they're from Kansas, but everybody belongs. That's a really important but radical concept. In the context of a world where authoritarianism, where ethnic nationalism is sweeping the globe, it sounds sentimental to be talking about belonging. It sounds quaint to be saying we care about the earth. When there are 80 trillion or 700 trillion dollars worth of fossil fuel still buried, why would you leave it in the ground? Okay, so you're going to mess up the earth. But we could take that $700 trillion and go to Mars. F the earth. <laughs> and what's our response? How do we bridge? When do we bridge? It's very easy to say, if they're going to F us, we're going to F them. If they're going to break with us, we're going to break with them. If they say we don't belong, we're going to say you don't belong. Notice, when we're doing that, we're adopting their framework. And I don't say to anyone who's been abused, been traumatized, if they want to fight back, if they want to be angry, and sometimes it's appropriate to be angry, I don't say not be angry, but I say we can't stay there. It's complicated indeed. The ancient tribal instincts we carry as human beings no longer serve us, not in an irretrievably interconnected world that gets smaller by the day, nor in a globally shared biosphere that we've broken by objectifying and exploiting. We've institutionalized the structures of dominators and dominated. We've built our economy and society on them. How do we build bridges rather than burn them? How do we change our societal pronoun from me, me, me to we? Again, John A. Powell. One of the things about healing, you know, you hear a lot about self-care. Very small in the larger scheme of things. You can only do so much for yourself. Mm -hmm. If you're doing all your care by yourself, it's sad. Mm -mm. It is mm -hmm. sad. Care really requires a community. Correct. Absolutely. You know, I, I participate in a lot of mindful practice, and people are saying, you know, it's like, first, do your work inside. And I always come back with Don Cherry, who's a, a beautiful jazz musician, and he used to say, the inside is not and the outside is two. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what he's saying is that duality between the inside and outside is mm -hmm. problematic. And healing 
in part, is bridging with yourself. What we do and when, we, when we're broken, literally think about it, when we're really struggling, we say we're broken, meaning that we're no longer belong to ourselves. And we do that not in sequence, not sitting down in a cave by myself. It's like we do it in relationship. And part of what bridging requires is space to hear and engage in what's called empathetic and compassionate listening. Yeah. Now, again, we're suspicious of that. Like, this, this person just said there's something terrible to me. I don't want to hear from them. Mm -hmm. I don't want to know about their suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm pushing them outside the circle of humanity. And there are these wonderful stories of people who have suffered a lot and use their suffering as a bridge. And I say because this is hard work and because let's start off building short bridges. You know, don't, don't go to the most extreme. And some of you heard me say when I talked to Pastor Mike when he says, do I have to bridge with the devil? Mm -hmm. And my response is, don't start there. <laughs> <laughs> But also be careful who you call the devil. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know deep down inside, there is no other. So if I'm cutting myself off from someone, for whatever reason, I'm cutting myself off from myself. Yes. And that's the deep, profound spiritual work. Yes. So we have a we. And if the we does not become real, if belonging does not become real, the bad news is then the we does not survive. For those people seeking to build bridges where angels fear to tread, often it's the hellish predicament of damned if you do and damned if you don't. What do you do when your own group attacks or shuns you for reaching out to bridge with the other? And what if there's plenty good reason to be suspicious and defensive? As an indigenous person, Ariel Deranger has often found herself caught in that crossfire. She's a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. She comes from a family of indigenous rights advocates fighting for the recognition, sovereignty, and autonomy of their indigenous lands and territory in Canada. She co-founded Indigenous Climate Action and serves as executive director. She spoke at a Bioneers conference. And it's so hard to build those bridges. And I know as an indigenous woman, from Canada, you know, a lot of folks in Canada is like super, oh, you guys have great relations with your government. Indigenous people are so well represented. But the reality is, is that that's like a fallacy. There's this appearance that there's this construction of a bridge happening that never actually gets worked on. They've got all the tools laid out and they've done nothing to build these bridges. It creates these optics and these illusions. And so over the years, we've seen this disenchantment from indigenous folks not feeling like there's a sincere effort to build those bridges with us. And like that question is, who builds these bridges? Who takes the lead? Who takes on those responsibilities? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the folks that are invested, that are like making profit off of the marginalization of others, whoever those others are, and it's diverse in wherever you are. And those others can also be other beings, you know? It's, let's be real. This isn't just about humanity. The othering of other species as if those lives are less valuable. By sort of default, humanity has already othered ourselves from the rest of the natural world. And I feel like that's a huge challenge. And as an Indigenous person in Canada, 
navigating these places where a lot of my family, you know, I'm the first generation to not be ripped out of my family's home and forced into a residential school or the boarding schools that they had in the United States. I'm the first generation. And so when you think about the trauma, the intergenerational trauma of like being fearful, not just of white people, like let's be real, fearful of the education system, fearful of systems of government, fearful of participating in those systems because they will take everything that makes you away. And so that you break and you divide and you put yourself like into these little boxes and you hide and you protect what you still have. And then when you step outside of those things, those people that hold all that trauma and pain, first they say, don't do it. And then when you do it, they say, oh no, now you're not a part of us. And so you end up in these struggles of like, how do you actually take the steps to build the bridge when there's so much hurt and there's so much trauma that is blocking the ability to build these bridges? Broken systems, broken people, broken trust in a broken world. It's a tough gig that gets even tougher when people translate their wounds into broken systems of domination and power. Ariel Deranger says the question becomes, how do we heal? It can be really hard when you have these traumas and these things that separate us. Mm -hmm. They separate us because things have been broken. You know, we've been broken. The traumas create these, these fear. And then that perpetuates into if you have positions of power and domination and, you know, you enact oppression. And that can actually, that's where the break happens. The break happens when you actually deny the right for someone to belong to those groups, to the societies. And that's where the struggle comes on how we, we have to overcome these traumas. Healing is a fundamental part of getting to a place of stopping the othering and building those places of belonging so that we can effectively build those bridges without those coming after us and you know, cutting those lines as we, just as we connect them. And the courage that it takes to be like, I'm gonna do this out of love, not out of strategy, not out of all of these things, but to come from it, from the love, for me and the work that I do is, I do this for the love of my people. I take on these challenges and I put myself oftentimes in harm's way for the love of my people. I receive backlash from my own community. And then when I sit in these spaces where I'm, where I'm told I don't really belong, I receive backlash from there as well. But I continue to move forward because I know at the root of this, the bridges that we're building, and you find those allies that say, I want to build those bridges too. And then suddenly you start to build these little tiny bridges, these little tentacles, and you're right, it's not like a linear thing. It's more like a web. It's like there's all these little pieces where you find this here, and then here, and then here. When we return, we hear from author Anita Sanchez on forgiveness as an act of transformation that can expand our circle of belonging. This is Reweaving the Web of Belonging on the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature.
For Anita Sanchez, the political became deeply personal at a young age. Today, as a highly experienced professional at the top of the game, working in the areas of diversity and inclusion, leadership and indigenous wisdom, she attributes her work to the trauma of the race-based murder of her father. How do you forgive the unforgivable? As that little 13-year-old whose father was killed, murdered, he was an alcoholic, so he went every day to get a drink after work. After shoveling coal, he would go and get a beer. But that day in 1967, early that day in that corner bar, a white man and a black man were having a fight. And my father shows up in the afternoon. The white man returns and he just sees my dark complected father in the same chair and fires several bullets through his head and kills him on the spot. Now I'm a 13 year old. What, now what am I supposed to do with that? Mm -hmm. That was bad enough. But what happened the week after is the white woman and a little white boy who was probably about 13 too came to the door and introduced themselves as the wife and the son of the man who murdered my father. And I was with my mom. And she said, I had to come tell you, Ms. Sanchez, you needed to know my husband was a good man. He never would have killed your husband if he knew he was Mexican and Native American. He thought he was black. And she started going on about what black people were. And my mom was very earth indigenous, but also very Catholic. And I remember her shaking. She just yelled at a stranger. I never saw her do that, telling her, stop. You don't even know what you're saying. You don't even know the kind of hatred you're teaching your son, but you get off my porch. I'm going to try really hard to pray for your soul, but you mm. get off my porch. Mm -hmm. what, what after over time, listening to these white people talking, they were sharing stories of their parents taught them they were better than us. Mm. But they were also dealing with their own healing. And they were slowly, not fast enough for me, but changing <laughs> some behaviors and policies and programs. And I'm watching. And they weren't just flaky things. Some major things were happening. And so I invite you to do the work, because there's a lot of goodies that come like, why do I want to go into that suffering? Well, because it's freedom. What I found is by using the gift of forgiveness, that gift of healing, mm -hmm is that I'm able to be in unity with others, belong to mm -hmm. many more. That, that illusion of separateness in my own separate wall comes down. Oh my gosh, it not only keeps out the bad things, it keeps out the good things. I wouldn't know mm. these people or you. Mm. So be about your healing and be hungry for it because it is possible. That's what I say. At this point, it's going to sound crazy and I'm going to pass it. Mm -hmm. I truly believe and know for me, there is absolutely nothing that is unforgivable. Absolutely nothing that can't be healed. Absolutely nothing that we can't do if we really are fully in it in unity. We make it sound really heavy, and it is heavy. There's heavy stuff, but there's a joyful light part. I never go anywhere. I'm never alone. I get lonely, but I am never alone because that hoop of life only knows we. Well, I saw the loss. I saw what happens when we really hate each other. There is nothing that cannot be healed, says Anita Sanchez, if we are fully in unity, in community. And as Mohandas Gandhi said, an eye for an eye will make the world blind. But it's still really complicated. As they say in the sports world, no pain, no gain. 
Yet most people have an aversion to pain and suffering and to facing our fears, even if it may mean our ultimate freedom and greater peace. How do you reconcile these opposing forces? Ariel Deranger says that peaceful coexistence acknowledges our unity, but it also requires healthy boundaries, self-protection, and a supportive community. We often have this aversion to, to conflict, to pain. We want to minimize and mitigate our lives to be as painless and hurt-free as possible. But the reality is we need to be challenged in order to grow. And sometimes those challenges come with pain mm. and adversity, and we need them. We also have to talk about like how we protect ourselves. I see people put themselves in harm's way too much, having too much empathy that leads to them being abused or manipulated. And we have to be very careful about taking care of self, but recognizing that self is part of community. There's this really great book, I've read it like three times, it's called Joyful Militancy. Yes. And it's really about like how we absolutely have to be prepared for those to challenge our perceptions, even to challenge our core values. And that we have to like not limit ourselves into those little silos and that we have to bridge those divides. But we also have to be careful that yes, that nothing is unforgivable, but that doesn't mean you need to have it in your life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, you, you don't invite your abuser to live in your home, but you can forgive them. It's not simple like, oh, we just need to have full compassion and open our doors to everyone. And if you're not compassionate and you don't want to accept me for my mistakes, even though I've hurt you over and over again, then you're not doing this right. That's not it at all. There's the need to create your own boundaries for your own like preservation of self so that you don't get traumatized, so you don't lead to those disconnections that actually will other you. And again, we need community in order to navigate these things with health and with grace. As John A. Powell says, don't start by trying to bridge with the devil. Yet in many ways, that's exactly what Nelson Mandela faced in South Africa a life-and-death war against the colonial apartheid system founded in blood-soaked racial hatreds and divisions, othering of the highest order and the lowest depravity. Nelson Mandela's in prison in South Africa, and he's head of the ANC, which is fighting a war against the Afrikanders. So it's not a good situation. And literally, he's having family members kill by the South Africans. So he has reasons to be very concerned and a lot of anguish and suffering. There's a big riot in South Africa and Soweto is sort of the heart of it, the Soweto riots. The issue that was the lit the riot, the issue that was focused on was the Afrikanders decided that the instructions would be done in Afrikander. So everyone would have to learn the oppressive language in order to go to school. And the people of South Africa, the blacks in South Africa said, no way, and they start rioting. At the same time, Nelson Mandela is asking his prison guards in Robben Island to teach him Afrikander. And they do. And a couple of things happen. So one, when the prison guards started teaching him Afrikander, they actually start actually trying to soften his position in prison. They're saying, you no longer have to break rocks. We actually begin to see your humanity. So you don't have to do all these terrible things. And he says, no, make no differentiation between me and all the other 
people in prison. So if you say no one has to break rocks, that's fine, but I will not accept special treatment. He's getting up in age already. Then he comes out of prison and he meets with the president of South Africa. They're meeting about a ceasefire to stop the war that's killing thousands and thousands of people. And the president says, I think we can possibly do this. But first, you have to meet with the general who's head of the Africanda army and convince him. Now, this general has actually called black South Africans monkeys. He says they're not human. He don't believe they can govern themselves. And he believed the whites can win the war. But he has to meet with Nelson Mandela. So he goes to Nelson Mandela's house. And Nelson Mandela's servants lets him in. He sits on the couch. In front of the couch, there's a coffee table. And on the other side of the coffee table, there are chairs. And Nelson Mandela doesn't sit in the chairs. He comes and sits next to the general on the couch. <laughs> the general is very uncomfortable. <laughs> and Nelson Mandela says, would you like some tea? And the general says, yes. Nelson Mandela does not call his servants, and he has servants, to fix the tea. Nelson Mandela gets up, goes into the kitchen and fix the general's tea and comes back and serves him tea. This makes the general even less comfortable. And so the general said, look, I'm here to talk about a ceasefire. I think it's a terrible idea, but let's talk about it. And Nelson Mandela says, fine. So for the next two to three hours, they have a conversation about the ceasefire. The entire conversation takes place in Africander. The general leaves Nelson Mandela's house and his entourage says, how did it go? And he says, I don't like this Nelson Mandela guy, but he can convince anybody of anything. <laughs> <laughs> he agrees to the ceasefire. By some accounts, he saved over 100,000 lives. Mm -hmm. When Nelson Mandela is sick and dying, the general comes forward and goes to Nelson Mandela's family. And he says, I'd like to make a eulogy for Nelson Mandela. His family has not forgiven this general, but they can't completely refuse. And they says, you got 15 minutes. The general gives the eulogy for Nelson Mandela in Kolosa, Nelson Mandela's native language. And there are a lot of stories like this. This is bridging. So the hurt wasn't gone. Now, one thing to remember, Nelson Mandela had not laid down his arms. He still had an army. He was still willing to fight. He was still willing to protect himself. But he also was willing to bridge. And so it's not sequential. It's a complicated, messy process, but it's real. John A. Powell. Ariel Deranger and Anita Sanchez. Reweaving the web of belonging. The inside is not, and the outside is too. You can explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, and videos online, and learn about the National Bioneers Conference at Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Producer, Teo Grossman. Program engineer and music supervisor, Emily Harris. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. This is program number 242.
This program was made possible in part by Guayaquil Yerba Mate, working with indigenous farmers in South America to grow shade-grown organic yerba mate to inspire us all to come to life. Learn more about Guayaquil's products and regenerative mission at guayaquil.com.